the Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on the Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Rajan Shankara. The basis of his teachings were formed while living a life of serious personal discipline and training for 12 years as a traditional Hindu monk in a cloistered monastery. He was trained by one of the Hinduism's foremost spiritual leaders of our time. So welcome on to the show, Rajan. Thank you. So before we delve into today's topic, Rajan, uh, for my listeners, can you give a little bit of something that they may not know about yourself or obviously going beyond my initial introduction? Sure. Right. So um, I started out life as a normal person in uh, 1986. I was born. And through a lack of um, discipline and structure, I uh, had a misguided youth and became a criminal. And I was a uh, drug dealer in Chicago, Indiana, uh, Chicago, and then later Indiana. So I would bounce back between the, the two places and, and distribute, uh, you know, pot and cocaine and, and uh, psychedelic mushrooms and things like that. And I got into quite a bit of trouble. Um, I got arrested all the time and was basically a, what I would call today a loser. You know, I was uh, no good to society. I gave nothing back. I simply just took and took and took. So then I kind of um, had a second chance at life uh, one day when I got uh, pulled over um, at midnight going back home from um, a supply run. So I had just picked up a large amount of uh, product and my trunk was full. So I was uh, pulled over by a canine unit and he immediately asked me to step outside the vehicle and go to the trunk and stand there. And he requested uh, that he search me and my car, which I calmly said that that was fine. And I immediately, once I was pulled over, I almost accepted that my, my life was over. And I pretty much knew I was about to go to jail. And uh, there was no getting out of that. I had enough for uh, intent to distribute on a mass scale. And I would have been found guilty, of course. And um, he, you know, pointed his flashlight at his car and said, you know, can my, can my dog search you in your car too? And that's a done deal. And, and the dog was going crazy. So I said, absolutely. And the guy just looked at me for a minute and looked me in the eye for a good 30 seconds. 
and he said, I trust you. And he put his flashlight away, he turned his radio off, and he walked it back to his car and drove away. And it was kind of, uh, to me, uh, that's, that's pretty much as close as you get to divine intervention. You know, I trust you. And I'll never forget that moment. And, and the next day, I, that night, basically, I took a vow that I would never break the law again, and I was going to go on the straight and narrow path and, and live a decent life. And the next day, I gave everything away. I, I closed off all my contacts, and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And a good friend of mine, my best friend, uh, who still is um, a good man in my life, uh, helped develop a company. He, he basically helped us develop an asphalt company. You know, and we were like 17 years old, um, 17, 18 and we ended up starting our own um, asphalt maintenance company uh, right out of high school. We went full throttle and became very successful. And um, I grew unhappy because I, I realized that having a lot of money and um, just having ease in life and kind of uh, going through the motions did not bring contentment or happiness. And I read a book by a monk who explained his life. And when I finished reading the book over the course of a, a few days when it was raining and we couldn't work, um, I knew something inside me kind of welled up and said that I needed to go and, and do this path that this monk had done. And so I, I decided that I was going to renounce the world and, and practice meditation and, and, and try to master it to see if it would take me to higher states of consciousness. And so I gave a friend uh, who had just gotten out of jail for on a felon charge, uh, who I used to work with uh, in the drug trade, uh, I gave him my company because he had nothing. I gave him all my clients, and I moved to the jungles of Hawaii to become a monk. Or, I mean, to study meditation. The monastery I ended up training in was just a, a backup. I, I just simply ended up um, getting lucky, I guess, and, and you know, being allowed to train there. After That's a story in and of itself, how that happened. So long story short, you know, I'm kind of this normal child turned criminal, turned uh, entrepreneur, business owner, monk for 12 years and, and now I'm, I'm a, a sort of a world yogi uh, teaching people that they can uh, really succeed in whatever they want and put their mind to and that they are more powerful than they realize. And Rajan, in terms of the meditation and, and, and looking at it from a perspective of how higher power how important is it from that basis to look at it from that perspective? That's a good question. I mean, if you don't, if you don't know who you really are and what you're all about and what your capacity for struggle and stress is, 
you will not attempt to break those limits. You, you won't attempt to go beyond your, your perceived limitation. And what I suggest to people is that they are, in fact, limitless up to the point of death. And that our number one goal in the beginning of our training and our foundation for life should be to realize that we do not have a capacity. And we do that by learning from those that came before and who have written these kind of truths down. And it's a repetitive type of, of teaching that our capacity for stress and challenge and hardship can constantly be changed and, and it can constantly grow larger and larger and larger. The monastic perspective that I now use goes even deeper into the mind and that our capacity for mental ability has no end and can grow and grow and grow into areas of the mind and beyond into spirit that we never knew uh, and we still don't know on a mass scale that's capable. And through the through the through the practice of meditation and meditative type lifestyles, we can unlock our potential, which is quite vast. But does it also come down to the fact that looking at something from a perspective of open mindedness uh, and not being so closed minded as to look at something straight in in the eye in terms of consciousness and, and, and only looking at it as something to be only black and white and, and looking at things from a perspective of it can go deeper than that. Would, would that be a better way of thinking? It would, would it be a better way of thinking to, to change your perspective of what's possible? Yes. You have to, uh, in other words, it's, it's, it's faith based. So if you don't have the faith, that you can succeed at something, you probably are creating a reality for yourself. If, if I didn't have some kind of mysterious faith that the meaning of my life was to go find out who I was inside, uh, without that faith, I wouldn't have left the mainland for a Hawaiian island, you know, and, and if I had listened to other people you know, and that what I was doing was possibly crazy and life destructive, I wouldn't have ever become who I am today. And and it was a, see, now that I think back about it all and that journey of going to the Hawaiian Island and, and, and you know, I had no, I gave away everything. I had no money. I renounced everything. I had a backpack. I was with my sister who said she would train me for a month to live in the wild and then leave, which she did. I mean, that kind of path requires an enormous amount of faith that somehow you're going to succeed at what you want and what, what, what is, was, is, is bursting out from inside you to get out. And um, I, I look back on it today and think, think wow, you know, that, that was really something that I thought that I could succeed. And, and in fact, I did. And I made it out of this, this uh, training period for 12 years a completely different person, and that was mostly based on faith in the very beginning. So 
you've got to open up to what could be, not what once was, and and what others say. And if you can do that, and you also have a good work ethic, um, and then I don't think there's anything that can stop you. So in a nutshell, you would say it's an anticipation towards positivity. Yes. Yeah, you're, you're definitely anticipating and having a foresight of success. And you're, you're, you're all in, I would say. And if you're not all in on something, you're going to always be holding some back. And if you, if you really need to accomplish an, an extraordinary goal, you need to have an enormous amount of um, buy-in and you need to be all in. But can you change that perception though, in terms of you, if you weren't in the mind frame of being all in at that particular moment, can you, I won't say use persuasion to be able to do it, use some sort of tool to be able to facilitate that shift. Yes, but that's a good question because that happens in so many different ways. One, I mean, you, you knowing that we have to change, the question then becomes, how do we change? And what are the tools? I mean, it comes through different different avenues for different people. For me, it was reading a book. And then the more I think about it in my training and development in the monastery as a type of soldier, almost, I mean, we were, we were trained to be soldiers. I did an extraordinary amount of reading and I read hundreds of books, mostly biography and autobiography, historical doctrines, um, military strategy um, and ancient, you know, texts, uh, scripture, of course, and uh, Stoic philosophy from Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, etc. Um, I would read something and then almost put myself in that, the author's pers- perspective, put them in their shoes and then fully engross myself in their way of thinking for a while. And then that would help me learn through a process of talking out loud and and thinking through talking and conversation and philosophical discourse with others. Of course, I was surrounded by monks, so that was easy to do. And we were philosophers, and we were philosopher soldiers. And while we were disciplined, we were also questioning our own mind and what was capable and, and practicing meditation to its end uh, because the limitation of the mind, eventually you eventually hit a wall with the mind and need to go beyond the mind in order to expand your limits. So I did that through reading. I did that through empathizing from the author and, and, and becoming the author and, and seeing if this was real or not. Other people do it through practice and faith. Other people do it through worship and their religion. And then they change because there's a deity greater than themselves. 
And then others, it's a spontaneous shift overnight because they've hit uh, a low point in their life, so low that the only way to go is is up. And, and I've seen each of those ways work on different people. But is there a, a, a right way or a wrong way to, to do something, or would that come down to the individual in itself? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't say that there's a right or wrong way. I would say that there are ways that facilitate the, the process faster, get you to the goal faster. Um, and definitely one of the best ways is having a mentor. I mean, if you can learn from someone who's been where you are and you're open enough to kind of trust that process that they went through, you can avoid pitfalls. But there's a certain amount of, experience we need for ourselves there's a certain amount of um we need to get burned a certain amount for us to learn what that pain is like you know someone one of a mentor of ours could tell us how painful touching fire is but if you don't touch the fire you'll never really know what that feels like and so it's a mixture it's trial and error it's having a coach with their experience, it's, it's self-study, uh, self-authoring and writing. And, and I think through that mixture, uh, you develop an equation for success and, and use a little bit of everything. It's kind of like a truth buffet, and you, you just try a, a bit of each, and then eventually you end up as a whole, complete person. But what would you say to people when when it does arise uh, and people will coin it, you know, you're sitting on the fence in terms of the way you're thinking uh, because they're not, I'm going to use my words very wisely, 100% committed towards what they perceive would be the right way, but you don't envision it that way in terms of I'm going to use everybody's heard of the tortoise and the hare why does it have to be per se the quicker way to do it and use a mentor? Why can't I do it my way and be the tortoise? Um, well, you certainly can. I mean, let anyone go at any pace that they need to and you should. And you can't force that process. You cannot manipulate someone to the point where they need to follow your path or else they're doomed. And, and, and that's an unfortunate situation when it does happen um, because they're not 100%. I mean, if they need to be all in. And if they're all in to the slower path due to ignorance, then that's the way they pick it up and, and gain their own truths from it. And and the unfortunate part is we're only alive so long and, and that is finite for this incarnation, uh, you know, regardless of what you believe in, eventually there's, it's an objection. It's an objective truth that this body eventually stops working. And so we only have a certain amount of time and then that that means whatever we do, ideally we do as efficiently as possible. Um, I'm 32 years old. 
having started my monastic training uh, at 20, starting the process at 19, um, you know, I would say I've gained a fair amount of knowledge in a short amount of time relative to um, what most people do, which is gain wisdom in old age because of everything they've seen in their life. I was open enough to to learn from others that came before me in certain aspects. Other things I had to learn on my own. That's inevitable, and that's good. You want people to learn on their own. But I was able to speed up the process because I was uh, sacrificing, you know, possibly going a different route, sacrificing what I thought I knew for what someone else knew. And I, and I took on a role model, and, and I had several uh, very close to me in the monastery. And, and all the people that I researched and read from became my role model as well. And if I had said, well, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not going to quite practice that. I don't have the faith or trust. Well, then I'd possibly still, still be spinning my wheels um, in certain areas. Whereas I was able to get over my own ego eventually and uh, my own ignorance and, and just surrender, literally put down my arms and say, okay, whatever you've got to teach me, do it. I'm an, I'm an empty cup. You won't be able to fill me, and, and, and you can just keep giving me this knowledge, and I'm going to practice what you say. And sure enough, it doesn't take long for you to realize that other people are, are much more knowledgeable than you are. And, and to this day, um, I, I still love the process because I meet someone who knows more than I do, and I'm like, give me what you got. Well, let me have it because, because – I'm deficient in this area, and I need you to fix that. And a coach, every coach needs a coach. Um, everyone needs a type of role model and mentor, and that mentorship is going to change and evolve as you grow. And you get different mentors and in different fields. So if it's a, it's a professor when you're in university, it's then a boss. If you work for someone and then – when you're self-employed, it's other people who own businesses. And to, to close yourself off um, is indeed the slower route. And why do it that way when you can follow um, cultures and traditions and ancient mythologies that have come before you and, and, and do what they've figured out and make the process easier? Life's already you know, hard enough. And so that's why when something happens to you multiple times in a pattern, you can almost sense it as it's going to happen and you can derive certain emotions from it. So if your heart's been broken three or four times, those experiences are not in the basement. They're in the basement of the basement. And so when you meet someone new, all of a sudden there's a pre-existing anxiety of not wanting to give yourself to a new person, right? Why is that? It's because of this sub of the sub, this basement of the basement has these experiences in it. So that's a third filter, conscious, subconscious, sub of the subconscious. So then if we start going higher in the house, we, we get our higher faculties of the mind 
And we have what the monks and, and kind of ancient mystic literature calls super conscious mind. So a part of the mind that thinks very clearly and is very pure and it's, con it's considered clear like a crystal, you can kind of see through it. And whatever the, the, is in front of the crystal radiates through it. And so you can take your awareness in the front of your mind and, and it can kind of directly access that part of your mind with whatever you're experiencing. So, for example, you can have an extremely good sense of focus. And if you're reading something, you only need to read it once and it's in there, right? Because it's not getting caught up in the basement. It's going straight to the top of the house where the rooms are. So then there's a sub super conscious. So the super conscious, this higher faculty part of your mind has its own basement where you can store information up there and access it much faster than having to store things in the subconscious. So ideally we don't want to store anything there. So I went through this kind of training over the course of 12 years and every day was you know it was a career it, I, without an off day i didn't have time to not live this kind of way so it, for some reason because of all that if, you know for example i'll listen to a client's problem or trauma or something and the things that I say kind of are, they go into their higher faculties. And I can, for some unknown reason, skip their subconscious and go straight to, it's like my super higher faculty part of the brain talking to their high, higher faculty part of the brain. It, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating thing. And it can even, as I've discovered of, of training people around the world via computer, also can go through a computer but you were talking about obviously off air before we started recording that and this is probably would would fascinate people and 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 they look at it from a different perspective but you, you talked of the the monastery being very mid mater, uh, militaristic yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but people wouldn't why do people have that illusion that because monks are seen as peaceful, they wouldn't tie the two together? Yes, yes. That's that's new information uh, whenever that part of the story comes out. So I believe that I was in a unique organization that does not exist anywhere else. Maybe in China, maybe in um, some orders of Buddhist monks that tie physical disciplines to mental stamina. But that is rare. And it's a, it's a profound experience because you have this militaristic type structure without the um, aggression or without the uh, a male dominance uh, aspect and you have this very clearly defined route 
And I say militaristic, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, not in a negative sense, but, but it, actually I'm extremely grateful for being in a disciplined and structured environment because it, it, it now becomes so clear that, you know, without discipline and structure, we, we really lack the uh, potential to become our best selves. And so I realized in the monastery that this was what made me who I am. When I started to train young men, um, I found, uh, I used to uh, write. And when I was kind of a beginner writer, I used to post um, some of my short articles online into just various uh, like Reddit type groups and things like that that would accept writings that I thought might help people. And all of a sudden, young men started to say, hey, uh, I've never kind of heard what you said before and what you wrote about. You know, can we talk more about this? And all of a sudden, I had about 300 to 500 uh, fluctuating uh, young men coming in and out of this group. And asking me how to shape their lives. And all I was telling them was kind of, this is what I do. This is the discipline that I follow. And I suggest that this is going to change your life. And it did. And so I started to make that my mission was to kind of help people that were kind of like me because when I was younger, I, I resorted to that kind of violent thug mentality because I lacked discipline structure from family. And, and I did not have a role model. I didn't have anyone to look up to. And so it appeared to me quite clearly that young men in general in society uh, do lack role models. And I became one. And I, I enjoyed it up to a certain point where I started to get burned out after a few years because it was taking uh, quite a bit of time and a toll on me. So I, I gave it a rest. And I realized then that I wasn't quite the same person without that kind of outreach. And um, to this day, uh, several groups are, are offsprings of, of a group that I started. And so that's kind of evidence for me and validation for today uh, that one of the first things I tell uh, clients that begin working with me is in order to change your life, where do you lack discipline? Where do you lack structure? And, and you know, how early can we get you to wake up basically to begin the day? And sure enough, uh, once the difficulties of beginning a structure subside, um, the person's life uh, begins to change for the better. And do you think it comes down to that nature what we were talking about off air before we even started and we were just chatting, um, just having a normal conversation? Do you think it comes down to this notion of anticipation it's not waiting for something to actually happen it's actually planning ah, yes and i'll put that into context for people so they can kind of get what we were talking about we were talking obviously about 
the extremes of where you come from in terms of coming from Chicago, would it be extremely cold in the winter? And okay, last winter was probably more extreme than, than normal. But <laughs> right. the, the summers do have a very, very hot. So in terms of what I was contextualizing from that basis is shouldn't people prepare because they know it's going to be hot during the, that time of the year and actually do something about um, their mindset as they're going to get more irritable a lot quicker because of the weather but in terms of you put it down to being more mindful is that an an essence of being more and what's the word i want to use Uh, using more anticipation to be able to prepare for that that eventuality right right it's a, a to have foresight makes a good leader and what we want to do everybody deep down right so if we're in the mind we're we're talking sub of the sub probably from when we're born and before we we all want to be leaders of something and it has to begin with leading our own life and anticipation and foresight is a sign of a leader and it I kind of break that up into two different things that we need to do. So one is intellectual understanding of what that means. And the other one is philosophical. Okay. So intellectual begins by understanding in our mind, the concept that we are in charge of our reactions. We are responsible, meaning we choose our own response for what happens to us. That's the intellectual side, understanding that concept. The philosophical side goes into our being and internalizes that principle so that it becomes a part of our morals. Now, the difference between morals and ethics is a, is a whole nother uh, uh, subject. But morals are belief systems that we internalize and that we follow, ethics are more societal. So a lot of people attach their morals onto a society's ethics, okay? And what we do wrong is that we don't yet know who we are enough to believe in uh, the correct mor- you know, ethic to make a moral. So <clears throat> once we figure out who we are and what we're all about, with intellectual and philosophical understandings of different, you know, principles. And we start to discover that we're in charge of everything. We can then go outside, experience, you know, the, in the myriad diversity that we're going to experience as we go to work, as we're in traffic, as we're in public transportation, et cetera. And nothing eventually comes in without us letting it. And we're forever in in a a mystical context, you would say you'd be the watcher. So we're forever kind of just observing what's going on around us and not reacting. So the weakness of people is that they react to circumstance outside of them, right? So in this example, it's extremes in weather. 
it gets hotter in most major cities, uh, crime rates go up. People are simply reacting to a situation outside of themselves. They're kind of letting it get to them and letting it alter their mood and then their future actions. Uh, and, and the greatest power in life that we have is our ability to choose our own reactions so that we can act accordingly and appropriately. Without that ability, so without the intellectual understanding of that concept and without philosophically making it a part of ourselves, we are subject to whatever happens around us and to whoever is around us. <clears throat> and that's not a way to live life. That's just like a piece of driftwood on an ocean uh, shore, just getting hit with the water, coming up the sand, shore and then going back out and just back and forth and whoever wants to toss us around that day it's it's their prerogative and people live their life like that and it's it's essentially uh insane insanity and so one yeah keep going hang on well so i guess um well, I think I'll I think I'll end it with that. Go ahead. But in terms of people probably can relate that, and I do apologize for cutting in. By we, most cases, you probably could relate that to everything within life, not just whether obviously anything haphazardly you, you're coming up against, be it you're not anticipating it being a problem. So I think it's relatable to every facet in life. It's just people aren't using the analogy that you talked about watching uh, some people are better that that it than others obviously people watching so it, i think it's having that awareness with oneself to be able to recognize when that is a problem yes awareness of yeah i mean i can't really say it better than that but do you think yes. term- people don't people don't um, people don't see it people don't see it as a problem because they're not even aware that they're in control so they attribute it to a factor of life like oh that's life that's the way it is that's incorrect that's an incorrect presupposition meaning it's it's like life they believe intellectually and philosophically that life is just hard and and, and life beats you down. So with that in their mind, they're predisposed to all kinds of those uh, uh, situations and and judgments and, and the reaction and it's okay. And they don't even realize that they, that they believe in a false truth. Like it's, it, that's not true. Life is not hard or easy or good or bad. Life has not decided that for us. Life in and of itself and every situation within our reality 
does not give a qualifier in a language. It does not say, I am this, and you should react this way. That's our doing, and we add language and build concepts and structures around a situation. Once we realize that, we become unshakable. But Rajan, how does how does the and I'm gonna use the term loosely, the general populace gain that awareness? Because obviously it takes in most cases for people to be aware of the situation hitting rock bottom to before they actually do something about something. Yes. Yes. And actually I used to use that phrase with, with young men who were lost and uh, purposeless. And I used to say, you know, you kind of have to hit a certain point. You kind of have to hit rock bottom. And, you know, we all hit our own rock bottom so that we can, you know, the only way to look is to look up once we're that, once we're that low. And a part of me says, you know, bring it on. Go through those experiences because I, I, I will defer to my philosophical understanding in, in Eastern uh, religious context and, and know that, you know, for me, everyone, and for my outlook on life, everyone kind of has to go through that. Everyone has to go through their own learning before uh, they make the conscious effort of changing their life. And yeah, I'm, I'm okay with people hitting rock bottom because to try and teach someone uh, uh, something that might help them and they're not ready for it, you're simply wasting your time. And everyone is on their own maturity scale and level. And you just have to observe and, 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 you know, wait for someone to be receptive enough, receptive enough to say, how do you do it? You know, can you help me before that you could tell them all the greatest truths of life, but they're going to have this shield up and they're going to say, I don't know what you're talking about, but you know, uh, this trauma that's going on to me is, 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 it's just a part of life and, and life, you know, wants to beat me down and, and you have to really just let it go. I think I've tried to help people, uh, you know, in that situation, everyone does, everyone tries to reach out to people and, and really what happens is you're over, you know, you're, you're overstepping and, and, you're, you're wasting your valuable uh, time and energy uh, for people who are uh, really do need uh, help and want it. So that's where we have to kind of shift our awareness. If we are in this field of um, coaching and, and being a good friend and, and wanting to be a mentor to others, uh, you have to know your audience before speaking. But also, Rajan, would would you not agree, or you could you could argue this fact? I think telling obviously people don't like to be told what to do. Right. I can relate to that, but but in terms of when somebody is per se 
going through that adverse situation, could you not show them the steps that you did? And obviously you, you did say if they're not ready for it, they're not going to take on board. But in terms of the person that they are taking those little steps out of that hole, could you not show them, well, this is the way to come. You don't have to follow what I did to the letter of law, but and go from that basis. Yeah. I mean, you have to judge the person and the way the person uh, can receive criticism and correction and guidance. So some people are very open and they'll say, you know, can you give me this, this, and this, and, and what, what time do you wake up and what are you reading right now? Cause I kind of want to mimic your schedule, et cetera. I've had that. And, and, and then they do. And then as they, um, get more mature in their own, uh, discipline, they create their, their own personalized schedule. And it's a beautiful thing. Other people, you have to kind of feel it out and, and give them something small and usually small victories, one right after another, you don't want to set anyone up for failure so that, you know, they don't get frustrated and all of a sudden they're back at rock bottom with negative self-esteem. So you kind of ha- do have to gauge the self-esteem of the person, what they can handle. And then, yeah, you can absolutely give bite-sized uh, pieces of information at the right time uh, in the right context for their situation and observe. And then, you know, that's when you come back and you watch to see what they do, you know? So I've had, I've had some people and, and I've made the mistake of giving people some pe- too much and all of a sudden they're overwhelmed with it, even though they may seem eager and they, and they, you know, give me everything. And then you talk to them a week later and it's like, well, how did this go? And it's like, oh, I, I couldn't do any of it. It's like, okay. So, you know, that's where wisdom comes in. Wisdom is the timely application of knowledge. And over the years, coaches especially and, and friends and, and people in an, a, a position of authority need to kind of read people and gauge where they're at, you know, which part of rock bottom, because some people can go even lower and some people want to, and, and some people need to, and you need to then gauge how to pull them up when they're, when, and if they're ready. But, but some people might be horrified to hear you say people want to go <laughs> to further rock bottom. Cause it's kind of counterindicative to, to, being uh, where you want to be that's counter to being a support system and why isn't rock bottom a support you know why isn't going lower a part of someone's coaching i mean you have to look at that carefully and i have to say my words carefully but what i mean is i think is I'm very thankful and grateful for my rock bottom. Without it, I could not have done what I've done. And if anyone had shielded me from it, I don't think I would be who I am today. And I don't know if I'd want to be that person. So that's what I mean. And 
if someone is not ready and, and you can kind of see through your experience, if you have more experience that, mm, you know, you could do better in a sense, like you could go lower. Chances are the person will do just that and then have to restart from there. And so you don't want to, you don't want to step in and act like a savior when, you know, someone needs to be their own savior at times and, and, and they need that teaching because life is its own teacher, right? We all know that, um, circumstance is, is its own teacher. And if you try to take over those teaching roles when they're not done with their first teacher, um, you're asking for it. You're asking for, uh, you know, someone could get, you know, you could really ruin um, a friendship by stepping in too soon and trying to advise too soon. On the other hand, you have a situation where you could be too late. Right. And that comes with someone who is um, suicidal, for example. How do you, you know, because essentially someone who is suicidal and rock bottom is attempting suicide. That is their rock bottom. And then successfully, that would mean the end of that person's life. And that's a very tragic thing. And that's a, a very delicate situation. So it depends on the situation. You know, if someone, for example, um, I used to help a lot of people um, with addictions. Some addictions, you can let them go and, and say, you know, we've tried this. You still keep going back. You know, we're going to take a break. You know, I'm, I, I don't have anything further to say because you obviously haven't felt the, the rock bottom of your addiction. And some, some addictions can be taken further. And so I think you have to know when to step in and when not to. And with suicide, you know, one thing I recommend for people, because I've worked with people who are in that situation, some of the best things you can do is just to listen and not advise. Because once you start advising someone, you could push them away. And then that drives them deeper into their uh, depression and anxiety. So someone, especially with heavy depression, you just have to listen. And you just have to um, sort of exist with them and be with them. Because they don't, it's not necessarily the true that they want to get out of their depression. They, they may want to actually be there for a little while. And, and I've, I've heard people and, and been with people and, and I'm sure you have too. Now, I think a lot of people can relate. The person that is in turmoil kind of says, just, just give me a minute. Just let me be, would you, you know, I'm kind of trying to figure this out at the same time. If you're, you know, if you're too aggressive and cause you want everyone to be like you almost, you want it, actually a lot of conflict comes from someone usually wanting to the other person to be like them. And that's kind of secretly what people are trying to say, you know, why can't you be more like me? Um, but 
someone and and I've been in that state that you know heavy depression and everything and and in fact in the monastery um part of our training for 2 years was to go deep down into a, a type of um psychosomatic depression so that uh you could break the individual and remove their identity with who they thought they were so that was actually part of the process of my training so yes i've been there i've been down there and a part of me wanted to be there right because a part of me wanted to understand that darkness and if you can go into a certain state of the mind and understand it and kind of shine light on it and come out you can really um you can really help people because you've been there and you know exactly what to do when so with a lot of people who are deep down uh, towards their rock bottom i suggest that you just be with them and just go for a walk you know someone who's depressed ask them if you can walk, go walk with them and see if you can get past an hour you know can you make it to the end of the day okay can you call me tomorrow morning and then we can go from there you know will you make it the night and you take these little baby steps and when you see the person clear up a little bit it's like call me in a few days you know can we go that far and then eventually the person is out of it and and then they're ready i know that's a lot but you think that in terms of that whole notion of you know hitting rock bottom is stigmatized because obviously it has a sense of to a certain extent somebody has failed and it's it's obviously it's not you and i's view of it it's probably society's view being to a certain extent manipulated to be well you need to be a certain way and we can't and and, and the notion i'm going to use is probably that sheep mentality. You can't be a black sheep in the context of that. And and that is why it's become stigmatized. Can you, can you explain what you mean by stigmatized? I'm not quite familiar. As in looked down, as in it's looked, it's looked upon in a bad light. Right. So, so um, I refer to uh, that, uh, the the opinions of others in society uh, i call that the social mirror and um a lot of times we are influenced by the social mirror so absolutely 100% whatever society says chances are someone is going to be influenced by it but we have to be able to realize that we're not determined by that which influences us. So yes, we can definitely be influenced. Uh we were all influenced by parents and upbringing and things like that and and socioeconomic factors and things like that and friends and schools. Everything. Everything can be an influencer. But does that determine us? And essentially that means are we independent? because you know if if a society then determines us and what they say goes then we lose our individuality and that's a very dangerous thing 
um, as we know from certain uh, political movements that happened throughout the 20th century. So if, if we can uh, hold on to our individuality and go from there, <clears throat> then we can start to help people realize that they are moldable. They are uh, not hardened and they can change and, and manipulate this, this, this influence and live, live a life that, that makes them happy no matter what other people uh, think. And that's very difficult. That's an interesting thing you bring up. That's extremely difficult to do for someone who has no philosophical um, belief system, but what other people gave them as they uh, were raised. Interestingly enough, that's what I love about technology. Um, I met a lot of people over the years who fear technology and the way that kind of goes because it comes with a lot of conspiracy theories. But technology is fascinating and, and, and making our lives so much better. And we can have a global understanding of something without having to go anywhere and to experience another culture. And I do recommend people travel and experience other cultures, uh, but we can kind of get a bigger social mirror, you know, and, and, and have a bigger uh, variety of what we want to believe in. So I think things are getting better in that sense where before I think with what you're saying could have been devastating and the, the, what was going on in society was absolutely what you did and believed in and going against it meant, you know, possible execution if you go back far enough, but, or in, in some societies in different parts of the world today, unfortunately, but now I think in most, uh, traditions uh, with the rise of technology, we can worry less about being determined by societal uh, stigmas and, and trust that, that people are pretty amazing and, and can, can um, change pretty rapidly if they need to. But in, all in all, Rajan, does it, it, it will come back from that philosophical, philosophical view coming back to that awareness and mindfulness. So obviously if you've been able to recognize that you've got that deep undertone within yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Once you can recognize it, then you begin to see your own self interacting with reality. <clears throat> so it's almost like having a, uh, you know, a, a virus software on your computer watching what's going on. Once you become aware of your own your own self, you know, and once you can detach your awareness from that which it is aware of and look in, you know, and that's really what meditation is. Once you can stop everything out here, or better yet, once you can stop your awareness from identifying and latching on with what's out here, uh, yeah, then we have a real power because we can then gauge everything on this new perspective, these, these, this new filter. And, and 
not everything has to go back down from our influences and into the, these basements of our mind, but we can actually just go up to our high, higher faculties and say, wait a minute, how should I be reacting to this situation? And I mean that literally, that question flashes without time. Like it goes through you, there's no time, something happens to you or around you, and all of a sudden we have a different reaction. We, and we start living a different life. And the consequence of that is we become a different person and people notice it. It's, it's, um, it is so detectable. It's, it's infectious and, um, people latch onto that and, and the right people come your way and, and just say, Hey, you know, what, what, what can you tell me about life? I'd, I'd really be interested to know. But on the flip side of that, Rajan, why do you think, in your opinion, that to a certain extent, some people view meditation in a certain uh, predisposed idea, ideological sense? Then, um, can you give an example? I think I know what you mean. In terms of, oh, they'll relate it to be it, you know, incense candles and somebody sitting in a, in, <laughs> a, in the corner of a room. Okay. Yes, I, I, that is what I thought you were saying. So. It's funny you say that now, uh, or this is happening now, because yesterday we were at a massive gathering in a city park called America Meditates. And America Meditates is a, um, a, a type of organization that's linked to an Indian spiritual leader, and they go around the world. And they represent different organizations that sponsor them. And they, they, they do a lot of cheerleading. And, and they, they, um, they, they gather people. It's a double-edged sword. They gather people for meditation. Fantastic. Like they were live streaming in, I think they said, 18 different countries. And they wanted to have the largest gathering of a, a guided meditation. And, and they streamed uh, so everything was, I, I was confused by that at first, but then I realized digitally they meant they were connecting people via live streams. And then that's how they were making the largest, uh, meditative gathering in the world. I'm not sure if they succeeded, but so I was skeptical because I've been trained in a certain style of meditation and a certain philosophical understanding of meditation. And one could argue I've been trained in the origins of, uh, of, of where medita meditation comes from and, and uh, everything else is kind of an offshoot. Like you're saying, there was this aspect of love and peace and, and, and you know, after your first meditation, you're going to be a different person and you're going to, they were, they were doing a lot of cheerleading, uh, different speakers and, 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 orators and they were very good at what they did but then started to get political and they started to have candidates on one side and they were saying you know you can see the you know certain things going on in society today and they were just kind of tiptoeing um as and trying to turn it into a political rally almost so and i thought you know this is i was i was um kind of hesitant at first and i was kind of you know, thinking, you know, why are we here in the first place? You know, let's get out of here. 
And, and luckily my girlfriend was kind of hesitant and she said, you know, we should stay that you need to see how people view meditation outside of your circle. And in fact, I, I did see that. And yes, general population meditation makes it sound like meditation at the first you know, attempt is going to change your life. And that's not a good idea because in my opinion, meditation is, 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 is um, it's, first of all, it's not always the first thing to do it for someone. It's, it's not always, it's, it's not a cure-all. And meditation could actually bring someone deep down into their own mind. And in fact, med- successful meditation will bring you deep down into your trauma. And it will come back up to light because meditation is finding who you are inside. And that means starting at the bottom. And going down into the basement of the basement, cleaning that up, going up into the first basement, cleaning that up. And then we can be an observer of life. And then meditation, it means we can go up into the higher faculties. I'm talking about years of training here. And a lot of in, in the first few years, a lot of it is therapy. So that's why in the monastery, we started so young, so that we didn't have decades and decades of trauma. But now, you know, in teaching people with decades and decades of trauma, I can be with someone for eight months, for example, visiting them twice a week. And after a year, then their meditation is starting to actually bring fruit because we can get past all the the muck. So, yes, I'm not a big fan of the yoga school of meditation, the the Western um, yogis um, who, uh, you know, Yoga is, um, uh, you know, Lululemon and, and your yoga mat and being a part of this, this um, trend and kind of like everything is about love and peace. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Meditation is not all about love and peace. Uh, meditation has some serious dark sides and you, because it is discovering who you really are. And, and some people are monsters and, and you have to go in. I had to go into my monster past. I had to go into that, who that thug was and, and who that drug dealer was. And, you know, I used to be in groups of people who hurt other people for fun. I had to be, I had to go into who that person was. And that was not about peace and love. That was seeing how capable I was of causing damage and, 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 and fear upon other people. And trying to resolve that that was a part of me for, you know, a, the beginning years of my teenage life. And that hurt to, 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 to remember who, you, who I used to be. That hurt a lot. And so if you told people that and who wanted to learn meditation, well, guess what happens? They're like, no, thank you. Don't want to sign up to that program. I think I'll pass. Um, but hey. That, that, that's that's where meditation can go. And, and I do think it's unfortunate to not get a piece of that in, in these meditative circles. But, hey, what are you going to do? But do you think that notion of, obviously, I want nothing to do with that whatsoever comes from an element of fear? Because, obviously, uh, and I'll use this metaphor I've used before in terms of obviously when we deal, when we have traumatic experiences we don't want to deal with we sweep them under the rug so 
why would I want to reenact what's under the carpet if I can <laughs> push it to one side and not have to deal with it? I I envision uh, from my 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 actual psyche, it's not there. If I don't if I don't have to deal with it, it doesn't really exist. Whereas I think having to deal with traumatic experiences myself and things have come to light, be obviously with dealing with, with mental health issues with that all that crap's come out i've had no i've had no saying as um and we talked about it before we started in terms of that that metaphorical door everything's come steaming through and i have no control of it because it's like an unlocked door uh, absolutely fear is guiding them because who yeah who the hell wants to go into that darkness if you you know if you're years away from it um, and there is a certain truth to if, if you don't talk about it, if you don't think about it, it's not there. That, that's kind of true. The other truth to that is it is there and it is part of your filter on reality. It, and it is, it is, you know, you are going to be reacting to certain things because that exists down there. So if you did really want to fix yourself, if you did, Take, if you do want to take that responsibility, yes, you are going to kind of want to exhaust every resource and, and go into every box and, and, and categorize it neatly and, and clean all that up in your mind. This, this kind of takes me back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, for those people who, who are not ready, they're not going to be ready. And, and they're and they're going to either avoid it, which, hey, that's where they're at. Um, well, you can't force them to kind of go into that. That would be, you know, another traumatic event for them, which we don't want because you want people to face their fears slowly, a little bit at a time. But uh, on, the, on the other side of that, that's exactly what that peace and love movement is for. It's for them. It's for people who I'm interested. I'm not going to change my life over this. I just want to say that I've tried it. See if it helps. I'm not at all wanting to nerd out on this and go deep down. I don't care about what, you know, you know, sages and, and mystical doctrines say about this practice. Don't want to know. Just give me a little bit and I'm happy with that. And my therapist is happy with that. And I'll just get by. And that's where they're at. And for that, you, you, you have to appreciate that movement because they're bringing those people in. They're giving it a really soft light. And, and, and if the person wants to wear rose-colored glasses and say, hey, you know, I meditate for 10 minutes a day, it kind of lowers my blood pressure. That's as far as I want to go with it. Totally fine with me. And, and, and that's, that's a, a big change for most people in and of itself. Um, I just come from a more advanced school that requires a certain standard. And, and I am, you know, biased because of that. And I, and I do have a bit of a, a narrow minded view and, and I do see myopically, I guess, um, about the things that I've been trained in. And, and I think that's fine too, because the people who say, you know, I want to dive deep into this uh, and I kind of want to get serious about this and see if meditation is about, cause that, that's who I used to be. 
And that when I was 19 years old, that's exactly who I was. And I said, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 100% or I'm not doing it all, at all. And I'm kind of an all or nothing person. So I went all into it and I found, thank God, one of the most serious schools of, of meditation there is. And I'm a teacher of that school. And my clientele, my type of people are the same. And that's who I want to teach. So there's, there's, a, there's good things in, in every school uh, and, and, and every kind of avenue. And they all have their purpose. So that moves me pointedly to my penultimate question to you, Rajan, then, in terms of how we've been speaking then. If you had to get somebody to either challenge or change their inner belief system, how would you get them to do that? Because obviously you're saying from one hand you would do it this way, but on from a Western sense you would do it that way. Well, I guess I wouldn't try to change... I would not try to change someone's belief system. And in fact, I'm not in the business of changing people's belief system. I'm in, I'm in the business of, of helping people who want their, their system uh, fixed and changed. And, and, and I can help with them with that. But if they don't want that, then I do not uh, want to waste their time. Um, people come to me because they need something changed, whether that's, um, athletic training, uh, or mental training or both. Usually it's both. Um, and they go hand in hand, obviously, as you know. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm for those people who, who are ready to make the change and, and I, and, and who, who are honest with themselves and to say, you know what, I know this is going to be hard. I need a coach who is going to keep me on point and, and, and then they sign up with me and I'm, and I'm all in just like they are. If you're not all in, if you're, if you're kind of skeptical, uh, I, I don't, I don't have time for skeptics uh, because I have a certain methodology and uh, it takes a certain amount of time and it costs a certain amount of money. And if, and if you're not willing to sign up for the program, then I am not willing to work with them. And my final question to you. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, is that we had to you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away. What would that be? Everyone is in charge of their own reactions. If they're not happy, then it's their fault. Essentially, everything becomes your fault. Once it does, you take full responsibility and you can begin to change the situation. Meditation is one of the techniques that I use to help people, along with a disciplined schedule of fitness and structure. I wish you the best on your journey. And, you know, uh, if you're ready for it, then the right teacher will come to you. So, Rajan, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you.
it's been a pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Rajan and I know what you've thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Rajan Shankaro Official and at James O. Roberts 11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And finally, do check out his website, rajanshankara.com. And as usual, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Make sure to check those links out. They will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsim.com under the category psychology. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.